I've shared with you all that last week of just some eagerness to study the book of 1 Samuel. And I would just change that a little bit this morning. Instead of saying, I'm excited to study 1 Samuel with you, I would say, I hope that we're serious to study this book at this time in our life. Um, as I spoke with some of you coming in, different folks listening who weren't here last week or who were here last Lord's Day, and just tried to reiterate to each of you that I feel it's a book that meets us where we are. So it's a book that's going to meet you if you're in a dark place. It's, it's a book that's going to meet you if you're apathetic. It's going to meet you by God's Spirit if you're already eager and excited and full of blessing and thankfulness of what God has done in your life as well as in the world around you. Last week, I, I got up in the morning. I was so excited to get started with you. I, I honestly said, how many miles can I run before I have to take a shower and get to church? So I was so excited. This morning, I didn't want to get up. That's just my life. It may be yours as well. I don't want to get up. I don't want to go this morning. Yesterday, we were at Nate's cross-country meet, and they take forever. And there's lots of people there. And when the ground finally dried out, I laid down across my hoodie and my daughter's hoodie and just laid there to try to take a little nap. And a very talkative pastor that I know from a different city found me. And just wanted to talk. I'm like, well, okay. I don't feel like talking. I'd like to lay here right now. Thankfully, he didn't want to talk to me about anything that our news feeds are full of. He just wanted to chat. Folks, I, I wake up this morning a little bit and Psalm 42 is on my mind. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him. We're going to see Hannah praise God in this text. But as I've talked to some of you about sometimes things in your personal life, sometimes things in the world around us, it's troubling the world for sure right now. But listen to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3. Understand this, in the last days there will be times of difficulty. Do you believe that? In the last days there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. People will be brutal, not lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul's writing to a church and saying, inside the church, avoid such people. You feel the brutality right now? And yet in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. So if you've had a week of suffering or frustration or maybe anger, are you going through that trial as a Christian? Are you suffering as a Christian more than any other identity marker in your life? Any identity marker, any other citizenship than your citizenship in heaven? Are you going through the trials as you perceive them as a Christian? And where I want us to start this morning before we even read the passage is many of us may need a paradigm shift. And I think we have it given to us here in the text we're going to study in a moment. Let me talk to you about paradigm shifts. Um, I've shared this before. I don't remember when, but I think I have. Thomas Kuhn wrote a work called The Scientific Structure of Revolutions. And he talked about paradigm shifts. And here's what Kuhn said. He said, a paradigm shift starts, or a revolution from a paradigm shift starts, when a well-established paradigm dominates thinking. 
And then what happens is a sense of anomaly develops. People begin to feel that something's wrong with the paradigm. Something's just awry. And then what happens is what Kuhn calls the roaming of the mind begins. From some people, not everybody does this. The roaming of the mind begins. There's got to be another way to think about this. There's got to be another way to do this. And the roaming of the mind begins to take hold. And then over time, a trickle becomes a flood. And then a new paradigm emerges, emerges and it's acted on, usually met with opposition by those who hold to the established paradigm. All right, here's my question. When's the last time you personally experienced any form of a paradigm shift? Where you went from your personal view of things to more of a panoramic view, and when you saw your view widen, you started to see things differently. Maybe that's what frustrates you about other people. Some people are like, they just don't have a wide enough purview. What justifies a paradigm shift? I would say when a reversal starts to happen that is better than the previous experience of reality. Let me give an illustration. Uh, some of you may be baseball fans in here. In 2001, the Oakland A's were uh, mid, not, they'd made it to the postseason. They weren't a great side, but they could not compete with the more expensive payrolls of the wealthy baseball teams. They were losing players to free agency and Billy Bean, their manager, that offseason met a young man who was a Yale economics grad named Peter Brand. And Brand said to him, you know, there's a whole new way to think about this. Billy Bean hired Brand and Brand started to use his sabermetrics approach to gathering the proper team. I just sound like a soccer player. I just realized I don't even know all the lingo. But sabermetrics is short for research statistical analysis that comes from the research of the Society for American Baseball Research, or SABER. And with SABER metrics, here's what the Oakland A's started to do. They started to not grab players that were evaluated based on the normal way you would evaluate a player, which would be things like batting average or stolen bases. They started to select players who had a high on-base percentage, but who might have characteristics or flaws that caused other teams to overlook them. And so instead of looking at, for the best player in the best position, what the Oakland A's did is they actually looked for undervalued players who had great on-base percentage, and they started to put them together like pieces to a puzzle. And it didn't happen right away, but reversal came for in 2001, or maybe it was the 2002 season, the A's won 20 games consecutively, an American League record at the time, sabermetrics, reversed their fortune, you could say. It was a reversal of logic that had to turn into a reversal of action, and there was, in some regards, a small reversal of results. Three years later, the Boston Red Sox actually implemented their own version of sabermetrics, and they won their first World Series in 2004, and they hadn't won one since 1918. So, uh, a paradigm shift that brought about a reversal in how one thought required a panoramic view to see things differently. And then in time, there was a reversal of fortune. I bring that up to you this morning because I, I love a reversal story. I think you probably do too. Paradigm shifts are uncomfortable. And in this text, we see the Bible give us Hannah's paradigm shift. We see her go from her personal experience to a panoramic view of reality. 
And that's what we're going to look at. So I'm going to read verse 21 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. And I would just ask you to stand. I, I, in your insert, we did not put the part from chapter 1, so you can listen to that or follow along in your Bible. But we did include the words from chapter 2. So let's read God's word together if you'd hear this. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. She said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I've made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who was, has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor man from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is the word of God. Lord, help us, we pray. By your spirit, would you bring to life these words? Would you give us paradigm shifts as necessary? And would you give us hope in what is displayed for us through Hannah's prayer? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we see the family took the trip again. That annual trip that was so tormenting to Hannah, we read in verse 21 that they're back in Shiloh, but this time Hannah's not there. She's at home with Samuel. She's going to stay with Samuel at Ramah until Samuel's weaned, which different commentators say different things, but even up to probably three years old, we read in verse 24 that when, when he was a young child, she brought him. So it's been some time. It is of note that she does not go back to the temple in Shiloh until she can fulfill her vow. That's an important thing to notice. And as she's there, she gives her offering, a three-year-old bull or three bulls, whichever way we read that. And they, there she is standing in front of Eli the priest again. 
If you were with us last week, you tracked with us that first time she was there. Remember, he thought she was drunk when she was praying in the temple. He was more familiar with drunkenness in the household of God than he was of prayer. And so she shows up years later and she says, oh, my Lord, it's me. I'm the woman. Do you remember? You thought I was drunk and murmuring. No, that was me. You prayed a blessing over me before I left. Remember, and the Lord of hosts has given me what I asked. And you just picture her saying, this is Samuel. This is the one I asked for. And I now bring him to you. I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. I have lent him to the Lord. That's kind of weird language, isn't it? I mean, God gives our children to us. In some ways, he lends them to us. So what might be being said? Well, another translation is she's saying, I have made him over to you. But get ready for this. If we go into the Hebrew, I showed you last week, there's seven times the word ask shows up in this chapter. Remember the Hebrew word for ask is the same word from which we get the name Saul. The name of the king the people would ask for in chapter 8. So ask is a very important word. Here's how this word, this sentence might sound like translated from the original Hebrew. Because the word ask is in this four times. The word for lent in your ESV is actually the word for ask in Hebrew. So it might sound like this. She says, for this child I prayed and the Lord gave me my asking which I have asked from him. I also have given him back who was asked for Yahweh. All the days of his life, he is the one that is asked for Yahweh. Tricky language. But the beauty of it is, is she's shown up to give back to God the one she asked for. It's a beautiful scene, but we can't separate ourselves from how hard this must be for her, right? Does she know she's dropping her three-year-old son off to a priest who's a fool? How trying is this for her? And yet, if we look at the next word in verse 28, we read a surprising sentence. We read, he worshiped the Lord there. Personally, I expect to say, and she worshiped the Lord there, because we know she's about to say a prayer. Who is he? Who's the antecedent to that? Maybe maybe it's Samuel, because she's going to drop her son off, and he will worship the Lord there. But we read in chapter 3 that Samuel's young, and he doesn't yet know the Lord. It could be Samuel. Most commentators say it is, but you know who else I wonder if it is? I wonder if it's not Eli, this priest who'd been so dull and so unaware of the things of God. Here this woman stood that he saw such faith in three years ago, and she said, the Lord of hosts, he will give what I ask for. He's the Lord of abundance. And here she comes back and in worship gives her son back to the Lord. And I wonder if verse 28 is not saying, and Eli worshiped the Lord again for a brief moment as he saw the faithfulness of God to his people. We don't really know, but we do know that Hannah bursts into worship. She bursts into prayer, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. There she is. She's praying again in the same temple. And so we'll see her prayer has four parts to it, and we'll dig deep into this. The first part of her prayer, she starts with personal exaltation and rejoicing. She says, my heart exults in the Lord. Now, again, the Hebrew for heart, it's not, she's not saying my emotions feel really like worshiping God right now. No, the Hebrew for heart is my whole self, my whole being, my mind, my will, my soul, my being exults in the Lord. And then she says, my strength is exalted in the Lord. Again, there's that word I shared with the children. That's the Hebrew word for horn. My horn is lifted up in the Lord. This word for horn shows up again in in verse 10, just so you know, if you're looking at her prayer. 
we read in the very last part of her prayer that God will exalt the power of his anointed. That's the word horn. So in the mind of the writer, as well as the reader, the horn of the animal would be the glory or the power of the animal. Again, like the glory or power of a rhinoceros is the power of that horn. So we'd see that in victory times, the horn would be raised up symbolically that we've been victorious because of God's power. But the word horn is very important in this book. I mentioned to you last week that First and, Sam, first and Second Samuel are one unit. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But if you go all the way to the end of Second Samuel... There's a song that closes out the book of 2 Samuel. So 1 Samuel starts with a prayer song from Hannah. We're looking at it this morning. 2 Samuel ends with a prayer song from David. And he uses the word horn at the very beginning. And his words sound a lot like Hannah's. Let me read to you 2 Samuel 22 verse 2. David says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. So you have the bookends of this story. At the very beginning, you have Hannah, who's going to be raised up to ask God the king for a son, a son who God's going to use to set up an earthly king. And as David does his ministration as the regal one chosen by God, when he's at the end of his life and he looks back at all God's done and he thinks of the promised blessings that are yet to come, what does David say? He says the same thing Hannah had said. He's, there's, a, there's a parallelism to their prayers he says, my horn this whole time has been held up by God, the king. It's a very important word, a sense of the strength that God's giving to his people through this story we're going to study. But we go back to verse 1. Hannah's obviously crying out her prayer to a God of power and strength. But the next thing she says is, my mouth derides my enemies. Now, how does she do that? By rejoicing in God's salvation. This is fascinating to me. Hannah, she doesn't deride her enemies by words of anger at her enemies. This is important. She's not declaring their stupidity, and that's how she derides her enemies. No, how is she going to deride her enemies and the enemies of God? By the joy she has deep inside because of the rescue of her God, who will not allow her enemies to crush her heart, nor to even win out in history. This is how she derides her enemies, by rejoicing in the creator and redeemer. Her prayer is just so personal, right? She says, my heart exalts, my horn is raised up, my mouth derides my enemies. But in what is she finding all this personal exaltation? We have it right there in verse 1. She's not rejoicing in her personal gain. This is not her sigh that she finally got what she's been waiting on. No, she rejoices in God himself. We see that in verse 1. It's repeated. In the Lord, in the Lord, in his salvation, the Lord of plenty. And so as we try this on for size, let me just ask you a really basic question. It might even be foolish sounding when I ask it. Are you personally familiar with you using your mouth to, to speak out boldly words of exaltation and rejoicing? in the God who made you? Do you use your mouth in private and do you declare the goodness of the God who made you and his way of rescue? I think there's a lot of us who should do it far more. I think there's a lot of Christians who would find that super awkward. 
Do you use your mouth to declare the glory of God to God in private all the time? That's what we have here. Interestingly, we saw last week when she was grieving, remember she uses the words of Old Testament history when she says, Lord, would you look on my affliction? Do you remember we looked at how that's the same wording that God said in Exodus chapter 3? I've looked on the affliction of my people who are being enslaved by Pharaoh. So she's using the words of redemptive history and putting her life into that story. She does the same thing here. Thought I'd let you know that. Listen to what Moses says in Exodus 15 after they cross the Red Sea. Moses said this, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Hannah is now saying? Her personal story inside of the story of God's redemption of his people. But she starts with personal exaltation. There's something major lacking here. What about the grief of giving up her son? How can this be? That all we see is this woman's exaltation and joy in the God who gave her what she longed for, and yet she's not going to be with that blessing from this moment forward. Except when she comes back, and we'll see next week, I believe, she comes back each year and she keeps sewing little outfits for Samuel to wear in the temple. They must have looked embarrassingly awkward compared to the robes of Eli and his sons, but she'd see him once a year to give him his new outfit. What about her pain? She's just so full of exaltation. That's what we need to see. And so her prayer moves from exaltation to a public declaration, and, and she's going to declare the holiness and the uniqueness of her God. That's where she goes. She's got all these attributes of incomparability. She says, there's none holy like you. There's none set apart like you. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. And then she's going to go forward and she's going to basically taunt the enemies and say, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come out of your mouth. You who think you know who God is, but you don't know the Lord of hosts. She starts to taunt. If God is separate and incomparable and unlike anything in creation, then any denial of his uniqueness, Hannah says, is arrogance. Any worship of the creature rather than the creator is arrogance. Any pluralism when there's only one creator God is arrogance. This humble, sweet woman taunts the enemies of God in her prayer. This will come back around to us. In chapter 17, we'll meet a young boy who when he stands and watches his brothers be afraid to fight Goliath of Gad, he can't believe that they're so afraid. And what does young David do before he does anything with a sling and a stone? Who dares defy the armies of the living God? He's, he's going to taunt the enemy. Out of the lips of a humble servant comes the taunting. Let me ask you this question like I asked the last one. In your personal prayer life, in your singing, and in your worship, is there any place where you declare so confidently the God of your creation and rescue that it's as if you taunt the world around you? Now, Hannah's not in anybody's face, so I don't mean like taunting to start a fight. I mean like taunting in your car while you're driving to work by yourself. Just mocking the, the world that, that hangs shiny objects in front of our face and says, this will give you satisfaction. And you laugh back in its face and say, no, it won't. That's not beauty. That's not pleasure. That's not good. And you mock those who would arrogantly speak against the worldview that God's presented to us in Scripture. Do you taunt the world? of power and of materialism, of, of sexual gratification, of success, 
of all the things we're told we must have if we're going to live a purposeful day of our life and we would laugh at the world who rejects the living God who's given us an identity and purpose enough. Is that a part of your prayer life? What's interesting is over the years being a pastor and knowing myself, I know some people that I think can taunt the tar out of an athletic event. Right? In your heyday, some of you, any taunters in this room? Right? I mean, I was always on an underdog team, and when you go ahead and you just know there's a force field in front of the goal and the opponent will not score, it's not going to happen. My mouth just starts going. And it's a, it's a blast taunting the opposition that they know it's not going to go their way. Is that foreign to you when you have a posture of worship and prayer? I don't mean road rage. Almost saw a fight taking a daughter to school this week of two cars in front of us. I don't mean shouting at someone and embarrassing them and being ungracious in your speech. But I mean in your soul, do you in prayer taunt the enemy that wants to crush your soul? That's what Hannah does here. And then she goes to the core of the prayer. Third part, she's got this prophetic understanding that God is going to reverse everything. He's the Lord of hosts. He's got limitless capacity. And what is he ultimately going to do? He's going to do globally what he's already done for her personally. He's going to reverse everything. And so consider the reversals between verses 4 and verse 8. The mighty and the weak will be reversed. The well-fed and the starving, verse 5, will be reversed. The barren and the fertile will be reversed. Verse 6, death and life will be reversed. Verse 7, the poor and the rich will be reversed. Verse 8, the common and the noble will be reversed. This is not just key to Hannah's prayer. What we're getting right here, folks, is the paradigm for the whole book of 1 Samuel. This is the grid by which we're supposed to read this entire book. Story after story that we're going to uncover together will have this as the theme. Think about it. Prideful Eli. He will fall. Humble servant Hannah. She's going to be exalted. Eli's wicked sons. They will die a gruesome death rejecting God. The priest would be rejected while young Samuel is raised up to a position of priest and of prophet. Prideful Saul is going to have the kingdom torn from his hand. He will fall. And young David, a man after God's own heart, is going to be raised up. Story after story. This is the paradigm of our understanding of this book. But folks, it's the paradigm of redemptive history, isn't it? And I would ask you, is this the grid of understanding that you have in your life, come what may, in all sorts of broken situations that frustrate you? Is this the grid where you look at your situation or a, a friend's situation or a child's situation and you're frustrated? It's wrong. And your thought is, you know what's really needed here? For God to reverse everything, even the things I can't see in this mess. Is that there in your mind? Come what may, ultimately, I don't need a tweak here, a better attitude here, help here, a counselor there, a good book there. What we really need is a better coach or a better employee or a, or a good business plan. Or we really need a church with better programs or different music or nicer people. Or we don't need a stronger stance on this or on that. Or in, maybe inside your marriage, we don't just need a different 
approach to communication or intimacy or your parenting. Maybe it's not just that you need a different posture or a different time of day to have your hard conversations. All those things could be good. All those things could be great. But do you feel what Hannah is saying here that what is needed the most is a total reversal? Mind and body and spirit, right? Do you need new ways to think about something or does the Bible tell us that what we need is a totally new mind that is captive to Christ? Do you need a body that exercises more? Or do you need a body that will not decay, a new body that will live forever with the God who made you? Do you need relationships that are more happy and less sad, less complicated, less intense? Or do you need relationships that have no sin in them? That's what this this is saying to us. Total reversal is what we long for. And it's what Hannah's praying for. Look in verse 8. She says, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he set the world. So here's what she's saying. The world was made by God to be a certain way. He set it in the right way, which means God alone knows when sin has messed up his world, what kind of reversal is needed to take it back to the way he designed it. He set the earth. He alone knows. He knows the way things need to turn. It's his world all the way to the ends of it. The end of time, the end of space. And that's where Hannah's prayer ends. In verse 9 and 10, she has this panoramic confidence. Her panoramic confidence, all, her personal prayer, it's deep, it's real. She had real pain. She had a real taunter named Panina. She had her own experience and it was in her corner of the temple, but she doesn't stay in that corner of the temple. She starts to pray and her personal prayer goes panoramic in its scope and she starts to praise God for his coming earthly king. Now, we know that the book of 1 Samuel is going to go down the path toward a king. We know that. In chapter 8, the people are going to ask for a king. But that's not the same as what Hannah does here in verse 10 when she prays for the anointed that would come. See, we know that God told his people that there will come a day when you ask for a king. Deuteronomy 17, God said, when you come and ask for a king, when you say, give us a king, you may indeed set a king over you. Deuteronomy 17, 15. Only that king must not acquire many horses for himself. That king must not cause his people to return to Egypt. That king must not gather lots of wives for himself or his heart will turn away. That king must not collect a bunch of money for himself. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that king shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord and keep all his words and that he may continue long in his kingdom. Okay, so the Bible does say that God's people were going to ask for a king, but understand with me, that's very different than Hannah's prayer right here. Her prayer is the first time in the whole Bible where we have someone saying to God, no, you reign as king forever on the earth. Never had that before. In the Bible, where a person by faith cries out and says, would you provide the righteous earthly king that will reign forever? And it comes out of this servant's lips, this panoramic confidence. I want you to see how confident she is. Everything's in future tense in verse 
9 and verse 10. The Lord will guard his people. He will cut off the wicked. He will break his adversaries. He will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king by which he reverses everything. She starts with her personal life and she just pans out. Who's the king that Hannah's praying for? That's right. That is right. Let me tell you, it reminds me of another mother who was told she would have an unexpected son. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, this mother named Mary was told that this son she would have would sit on the throne of his father, David, and he would have a kingdom that would never end. And then when Mary, the mother of Jesus, prays in Luke chapter 1, she uses almost identical wording to what Hannah uses here. So let me read parts of it to you briefly. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He's done mighty things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is much greater than just to me, though. It's for all who fear him from generation to generation. That's the prayer of Mary. Do you not see it going from personal to panoramic? And then look at what she does in her prayer. He has shown strength with his arm. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. So where does she go in her prayer? Reversal. When the king comes, my son will be the king. He'll reverse everything. And folks, when Jesus came, was not his very coming a reversal of anything that anyone would ever have expected? Right? He came the son of a virgin woman, a total reversal of biology. The holiness by which he lived, though he was fully man, was a total reversal of all humanity who could not stop sin's oppression and keep us from sinning. The reception that he received when he came with all power, he was rejected and despised. The total reversal of what you would think a king with his holiness should be received. The way that he conquered was a total reversal of the way human kings conquer. He ended up naked and bloody on a cross, suffering the wrath of God the Father. But the death he died, also a total reversal of any death that's ever happened, for he did not stay dead. He was resurrected. And so then we read in the scriptures that when he comes again, what do we expect? Total reversal. Creation has been groaning for a new creation and he's going to bring it. So I want to close up, but I want to ask a series of questions to help us. This book is going to point us to the king of reversal. Hannah's prayer is bold and zealous and beautiful to the king of reversal. How consistent is your prayer life with what you read here? Do you believe that God works through prayer? Remember this woman? She's been taunted by Panina. Her husband's disappointed. She's not gotten what she's wanted. She pours herself out in prayer without words. She's just groaning and she's mumbling and God has answered her prayers. And somehow in her life and her story, him hearing and answering her prayer is going to become so big and so panoramic. It's going to be a faith that announces to people in 2021 that there's a king who will reign at the ends of the earth. Do you believe God uses prayer that powerfully to totally reframe perspective? Second question. Do you declare who God is 
when you pray, like Hannah does? Or do you mostly declare what you need from God? Do you declare who he is and how he works in your prayer life? And when you so do that third question, do you go from the personal to the panoramic every single time? Or is Hannah's meditation and prayer rather foreign to you? In your fast-paced life, with your busy, amusing ourselves to death culture, where we get up and we start and we do and we fix and we do and we fix and we try to play in between the doing and the fixing. If that's where you're at as you start this morning in this series with us, where do you start to reverse that trend? I give you some encouragement. You start by acknowledging that what you want the most is total reversal. Start with the longing that you know you have. Secondarily, before you do anything, ask for God to reverse everything. Before you do anything, ask again that God will reverse everything. And that as verse 9 in her prayer says, For not by might shall a man prevail. Commit yourself that you won't walk through a day by might, but by praying to the God who's the Lord of hosts. And then what I would encourage you to do is just start simple using this prayer as your model. No matter where you start, end at the right place in your prayer life. Maybe you start with pain or pressure or people or problems. But don't end there. Paul Tripp, one of my favorite counselor teacher guys, he said it over and over. Sin causes us to shrink our lives down to the size of our lives. So don't start your prayer life with the sin you see in the world and the sin you see in yourself and just stop there. You're shrinking the reversal work you want God to do down to the size of your life. That's sinful. That's selfish. That's myopic. So no matter where you start, don't end there. End with a declaration of the eternal reign of Jesus who will reverse all things. And he's already reversed the consequence and cost of sin for you. He's already reversed the power of sin's oppression of you. And he will reverse all things. And so if you use this prayer as your model, let me encourage you. Maybe you need to start with one of the categories of reversal and just claim it. And pray about it because you know it's a reversal you need in your life. Whether it's in the strong or the weak. Whatever one of those, the hungry or the well-fed. The barren. The one who has much. Start with where it hits you. Don't stop there though. And maybe some of us need to not start where our need connects to the prayer. But start where we see Hannah just rejoices in the Lord himself. Maybe that's all you need to do for a long period of time is just rejoice in the Lord. Maybe some of you need to taunt the enemy in your prayer to God more than you taunt the masses of people around you when you're frustrated. Taunt the enemy of the salvation that's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, in your prayer to God as you anticipate 
that he is sovereign over everything and the Lord of hosts will come and he will crush all iniquity and every nation will bow to him and all will be made new. Start with this prayer. And I can only imagine where we as a small congregation where the Holy Spirit's at work will end up if all of us help each other go from the personal to the panoramic in our faith and in our prayers and in our obedience, in our decisions, would that we would do that. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you be glorified, that we would have the faith of Hannah. We thank you that she starts in her personal place and she ends in such a panoramic picture. Would that be a paradigm shift for us? Would we anticipate the reversal of all things? Would you forgive us if we doubt it or we don't think it's possible? Would we not shrink our life down to the size of our life or shrink our experience of your kingdom down to the size of whatever the issue is we're most consumed with? Would we see that you are going to end all oppression and you're going to recreate all things and you are the God of justice and there is no arrogant, offensive sin against you that will go unpaid for. And so we ask that you'd help us also then to have a posture of mercy and thanksgiving. When we talk to others around us about why we rejoice with the rejoicing that we do, it's not because our circumstances necessarily are better than they were a week ago, but because of what we believe you will do at the end of time. What you've already done in our hearts by grace through faith. Give us that panoramic mindset, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.